Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Hey, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, folks. It's V, the Girl Economist, and it's the Geostrategic Hour with our man of the hour himself, Matthew Arad. He's here with us. You can find him over at uh, CanadianPatriot.com, also at the TheRisingTideFoundation.net. Those are the two sites, as well as the Substack. The links are in the description box. And with that being said, Matthew, what's going on, buddy? How are you? Hey, gentlemen. Good. Very good. Yeah, the, uh, the show has really blown up internationally, so I figure we have a lot to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, dude, I, I love it. Yeah, I shared with you guys a little uh, a little meme that uh, that really caught my attention this morning. I, I woke up and, and enjoyed my coffee, but uh, somebody shared saying, "If you ever feel if you ever feel useless, just remember that it took the USA four presidents, thousands of lives, trillions of dollars, and twenty years to replace the Taliban with the Taliban." <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Do you have that? I do. I, oh I yeah. God, I shared on the Telegram group. Oh, there it is. Yeah. There you yeah, go. Really <laughs> USA, four presidents, thousands of lives, trillions of dollars in 20 years. It's, it's just wildly awesome. interesting. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they've tried so hard, so bloody hard over the past like weeks and months to get across the idea that the Taliban is, you know, there's going to be months of fighting uh, to, to take the Taliban down and all of these things. And, and here they are like, couple of days into it they, they they've taken control of the the entire nation of afghanistan and i'm not like saying the taliban's good or anything there's no you know we're, we're in real real politic here but the right. fact is uh the chinese and russian governments have both made a very clear point on both sides that they highly prefer working with the taliban at this point than any puppet government that the u.s has installed there and that's even what the, <laughs> the, the russian foreign ministry spokesperson even just directly or the presidential envoy what's his name uh is amir kabulov he yeah. directly said that he's like we you know honestly <laughs> this is way better and uh and everybody else has gotten out so we we've seen the pictures of people hanging on to planes flying dead you know bodies falling off planes like it's a real shit show uh the russian the chinese the pakistan embassies are still there uh, the Russians fully, were fully operational, by the fully, way. fully operational. operational. No, no one's running out of there with their hair on fire. Not at all. No. And, and I mean, you know, we, we, it's become very clear that this, uh, on the one hand is not Trump's fault. I mean, Biden gave a, a crazy speech where at the end, he's like, this whole thing is Trump's fault. And it's like, wait a minute, this happened 20 years ago. Trump even had a, uh, an exit strategy worked out to bring the, the Taliban to the negotiating table to get out in May of this year. It should have already have right. happened with a right. competent exit strategy and nobody, every intelligence, um, operative who has come out publicly speaking about the debacle, they've all made the same point that every single piece of advice has been completely and systemically ignored. 
um, which has resulted in just havoc, chaos, confusion. All of these people who have been working with Canada, the British, the U.S., sometimes I'm sure doing very nefarious things, you know, on the ground in Afghanistan in defense of the opium trade, which goes, you know, still to this very day, over 80 percent of the world's heroin uh, comes from Afghanistan, which it looks like, you know, the Taliban looking at their previous accomplishments in 1999, 2000, when they were running the show, completely eradicated. annihilated, eradicated it. Yeah, yep. you can see these graphs. Uh, CJ could probably pull one up. Oh, it's this Kabul skydiving club. Oh my God, it's too soon. Oh my God. <laughs> <Too soon. laughs> sorry, that's wrong. I'm sorry. I'm brutal. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, take it back. Take it back. Uh, but yeah, I'd be mean, like, you know, it, it, you have obviously a vacuum, which is going to increasingly be be filled here by the Eurasian multipolar alliance. Uh, China has made it explicit that they wish to help um, build and work with the Taliban and, and construct infrastructure. They're already in deep negotiations to begin work on the Peshawar uh, Kabul um, motorway, which is going to connect Afghanistan to China and as well as the, uh, the Wakhan corridor, which... I mean, this is the ball is rolling. Both of these are going to pull Afghanistan increasingly into the Belt and Road Initiative. We um, <clears throat> we see the, and the and the the Wakhan corridor. There's like a, a 76 mile long connection. It's a tiny corridor that connects directly the border of Afghanistan to China and has been a, the cause of a lot of grief for decades. Um, the Taliban is not what it used to be. I mean, th- there's been a People forget, they, they think that the Taliban is the cause of 9-11. And I mean, a lot of Canadians even, I know Americans have been pummeled with this, but a lot of Canadians even think that, how do you work with the people who did 9-11? And it's like, no, first of all, even if you go with the official narrative, 9-11 was done by a bunch of Saudis uh, operating, you know, not, it wasn't even Afghanistan. They didn't have a single role to play. Nothing in Afghanistan had anything to do with 9-11, let alone the Taliban. Uh, but it was a bunch of Saudis. Uh, who on the on the surface at least were the operatives who were deployed with the help and complicity of major major high level uh, power structures within the United States around Dick Cheney as well as within British intelligence supplying a lot of and bankrolling a lot of this this black Mossad and Mossad. So you have a nefarious international deep state which had everything to do with that, and that's even a, a, official. It's it's there were all Saudis who who carried out the thing officially. Seventeen out um, of nineteen. <laughs> yeah, like my God, you know. Uh, so, on the one hand, we just blew up that whole country for twenty years, uh, zapped trillions of dollars, many countless lives um, yeah, so on if, all but sides. If, but if a few people can make a hundred, couple hundred billion dollars off the opium trade, why not, right? Exactly. N- and, you notice yeah. they didn't they didn't touch the twenty nine trillion in rare earth that's in the ground because mm. the U.S. has no capability, no production capability, no manufacturing capability, no extraction capability, no mining capability of either of, of either get, of, of getting that thing out of the ground, and then when they get it out of the ground, they have no, they, there's no wherewithal for them to do anything with it. So go no, for the exactly. easy kill, the opium. Yeah, and that's why what we're seeing right now is, and uh, well, there's two things that you just said that that awoke a thought in my mind, which is number one, um, the the opium, the, the heroin trade internationally has been for a very long time a, a major component of the operational procedures of the international financial system of the West. HSBC right. was caught directly. They were found guilty in 2012 under the Senator Carl Levin hearings. They were found guilty for dealing in, in, in and laundering hundreds of billions of dollars of, op- of heroin um, for a long time, and also terrorist fund financing. That was actually the name of his committee hearings was 
uh, investigation on drug and terrorist uh, laundering through HSBC. They were found guilty. They were, they paid something like a few hundred, like $180 billion. Mm -hmm. Then they were forced to, you know, after, after they, they did their little bribes and they, there's no evidence that they stopped doing what they were doing, by the way, they just paid their little bribes. They paid their, uh, their thing to settle. And, uh, sorry, got something here. Ah, sorry. Cat was, uh, gnashing at my feet. Um, and then what did they do? They, they had, um, a little bit of a, they were, they were in the penalty box for five years where they just had somebody who was already part of the, uh, the international financial system who was put in as a little bit of an umpire in their, in their offices to say, Oh, okay. Are you guys doing things? Okay. For five years, they basically had to do this. And by 2017, they were out of the, the penalty box, able to do what they were doing. And I mean, HSBC, what is this? Is this, is this Chinese? A lot of Americans think, Oh yeah, China's running the world. Look, they've got things like HSBC, Hong, Shang, Hong Kong, Shanghai Bank of Commerce. Those are Chinese. They're, they're bad. And I've actually heard people write to me telling me this, this dumb stuff. It's like, no, this is a London-based financial institution that was created by the British right. to stuff opium down the throats or lungs the of the world and specifically the Chinese back in 1865 after right. they, they smothered China in the opium wars the first time around. And they kept doing the same thing the whole time, operating out of Hong Kong, Shanghai, two British Intel deep state hubs to this very day. Though there has been purges and cleansing, it's still very that Hong Kong is still known as the CIA and MI6 of the Pacific. Of the Pacific. Correct. Yeah. And HSBC runs to this very day. Like if, if China really was this this totalitarian behemoth, um, the way many of their detractors say, then they wouldn't have allowed a foreign London-based bank to run and control and emit a third of Hong Kong's currency. If you go to most current notes, bank notes in uh, Hong Kong, it's printed by HSBC Bank. Correct. Um, they created the triads that are all Hong Kong based. They interface with deep state operatives. It's also where the deeply. fentanyl trade is coming out of Hong Kong and Taiwan, Macau. That's where the fentanyl trade is coming out on there. People say, that's a Chinese fentanyl. No, it's not really at all. Yeah, you, you're you on the same wavelength as you. I was, I was moving in that direction. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like all of these these people who are, you know, on the one hand, I think that the, the financier oligarchy in the West is is like willing to take a bit of a loss to their opium production because increasingly over the past, especially last decade, we've just seen the, the graphs. You can see these graphs of like the increase of, of fentanyl, methamphetamines and other synthetics, um, which are increasingly replacing, well, actually not even replacing. I mean, heroin use is still increasing too, but these have increasingly taken up a, a greater and greater bulk of the modern opium wars and you notice and, the the fentanyl trade really exploded when uh, right after the taliban eviscerated 80 percent of the opium market uh, with eradication of poppy in afghanistan yeah. and right on cue that's when uh you know synthetic fentanyl was created was synthesized and it was brought to the the, the black market i mean come on mm -hmm. <laughs> you know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, it, it, yeah it's know, like I... when, when when the cocaine trade was getting risky what do they do they came out with methamphetamine right with meth mm -hmm. cooking meth and getting meth across the border from the south very good point. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, and and I mean the whole uh, use geopolitically of drugs by the the Western intelligence agencies, the deep state, the whatever people want to call it. Um, this goes. I mean, we've seen examples of that with Iran Contra, the idea of the U.S. government supporting Contras that are dealing in drugs in order to stop the Soviets, the the pro-Soviet governments, as a form of asymmetrical warfare. That's something that was done there in the 1980s. Um, it goes far back in time. It's still a present thing. And again, when a lot of people think of, 
oh, China is getting their revenge on the West for the opium wars and the hundreds of years of humiliation by yeah. feeding us fentanyl uh, through Canada and Mexico into the United States. And it's like, no, this is not ch Chinese communist you know, party uh, manipulations. This is a Hong Kong-based operation primarily with extensions into the Guangdong province, which, which borders on Hong Kong, which is the center. It's the concentration of the biggest billionaires in China, which overlap with this. Macau, which was, a, a, again, a Portuguese colony until 1999. is. I mean, Hong Kong was given back, kind of, at least in name, in uh, 1997. Macau, I mean, geez, people forget about this thing. The, you know, the Portuguese colony, it was 1999, two years later. And uh, and Taiwan is sort of the triangle of this zone of production, which is all places where we have had national endowment for democracy operations, color revolution operations in Hong Kong, massive military industrial complex maneuvers in Taiwan to try to destabilize and undermine China. And it's like, you could only imagine if China was going to Hawaii saying like, you know, we're going to, we're going to encourage, we're going to recognize Hawaii as an independent country and try to do arms deals with the Hawaiian nationalist uh, movement. I mean, Hawaii has legit grievance to actually not want to be a, a part of the United States. I don't know if there are that many like there are in Taiwan who, who are brainwashed into wanting independence. I don't know that, but I know that in the 19th century, Hawaii was its own kingdom and it was colonially taken over by the United States without any good justification. So if there actually were, I'm not saying I'm, I'm encouraging this, but I'm just saying like as a thought experiment, if there were actually like, a, you know, legit reasons to, for China to go to Hawaii to build up a military base and support all these, these, you know, uh, war game scenarios against the United States on their perimeter, they would have more, more reason than the U.S. doing the same thing to Taiwan or to Hong Kong, pretending that Hong Kong is this independent country. It's like, no, these are both, they're both Western run. They've been Western run for a long time. And uh, I get frustrated because I've got a lot of people who obviously like the, the type of writing that I do. I, they, they are attracted to people who can map out the, the conspiracy of what's behind the Great Reset, what's behind the banking system. They, they like those things. But there's this susceptibility in Canada, U.S. especially, to believe that the ultimate hand of evil behind the U.S. color revolution against Trump and against everything that's going on that's bad in the world is all... China's Communist Party because, you know, Taiwan produced the motherboards and microchips that went into Dominion voting machines, you know, which is what the Michael Lindell, uh, there, there's a, a bunch of hearings right now, which are interesting hearings, sort of going through the forensic reasons for the, the, the color revolution, which has a lot of George Soros behind it, a lot of, a lot of, you know, yeah, well, we Soros, about that. The, the, the evil Bond villain with the paladrum for, for, a, for a last name named uh, Xi in China the worst enemies against open democracies and open societies. Did you see yeah. that one? Yeah. yeah, I did. I did. That's right. And it, it's it's like, he said, and people will say, like, I've, I've actually given that, that example out with the citation from the 20, uh, 2020 January Davos conference where he gave the speech, and you can read the whole transcript, and he says, you know, Trump's got to go, Xi Jinping's got to go, and he goes through his whole strategy of, of getting his open society dream to, re to become a reality. But then they say, oh, yeah, but look, in 2010, he said this other nice thing about the Chinese Communist Party. So that renders it irrelevant. And it's like, no, he said those words in 2010, but 2010 was a very different world from 2019, 2020, the world we're living in now. And, uh, you know, if you actually look at what China 
is the only country, the well, not the only at this point, others have joined, but they were the first country to officially kick out George Soros, expel him for life, shut down all of his uh, open society operations in China way before anyone else did. We were all sleepwalking into the New World Order back in the 1980s. Everybody, you know, was drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, even, you know, China was going, uh, Russia was going down the, the Gorbachev, Yeltsin, uh, Perestroika, Glasnost. Perestroika, yep. Yeah, they were going that down that whole privatization, dismantling the Soviet Union uh, corridor. And, uh, you know, the West had already been essentially captured. The dead bodies of, of Bobby Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, Enrico Mattei, um, overthrows of, of nationalist leaders who were anti-NATO, uh, pro-nation state like Charles de Gaulle had already happened, you know, in 1969. Kissinger and the Trilateral Commission with all of their little systems analysis cyborgs who believe in Alvin Toffler's third wave uh, were already had already done their coup d'etat inside of the Western governments of Europe and North America. And China had the wits. I mean, they... They played a lot. I mean, they 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 screwed up too. In the when they started opening up, they made their share of missteps and allowed a lot of this poison into China in the 1977-78-79 period. There's actually a new paper. I just it should be published uh, this week um, on how China's Gorbachev was flushed. But um, you know, they they didn't know what to do exactly. How do you overcome the the culture revolution? All of this this abuse that had happened for a very long time. How do you start building a modern society from a feudal or agricultural based society? And they were, they made again, a lot of mistakes. They had allowed Milton Friedman to come to China as one of the earliest scholars to give presentations to all of the young uh, elites. Um, they allowed Alvin Toffler, who I just mentioned uh, to come in as well. The, the author of the third wave and future shock, he was touring China um, they even allowed some of their disciples, like this guy Zhao Jiang, who became this the the secretary general of the Chinese Communist Party for two years. He was going to be the heir apparent of Deng Xiaoping. He was going to run China, um, right. and he was a disciple of of uh, Alvin Toffler and of Friedman. He met them many times. He was yeah. bringing in Samuel P. Huntington's theories into the school system. They were translating all of these Western neoliberal theories into Chinese and spreading them to the elites. And so they were infesting like parasites, just like they were in Russia, except when push came to shove and, um, and people began realizing what this guy was in China, they, uh, they started pushing back against him. And when they started getting pushbacks, all of a sudden you had Gene Sharp who was invited in from the Albert Einstein Institute. And I think everybody should know who Gene Sharp is. Um, the author of how to how to how do you start a revolution? <laughs> and this is like a color revolutionary uh, uh, founding father. This is the guy whose whose designs have been used as the blueprint to effectuate color revolutions all throughout Philippines in the eighties and uh, throughout the nineties and Georgia and Ukraine. It's Gene Sharp. I don't think he's still alive, but he was on the ground during Tiananmen Square organizing with the National Endowment for Democracy with Zhao Ziyang who owned two think tanks. He sponsored one, Soros's China Fund and the Institute for the Reform and Opening Up of China. Zhao Ziyang, right? Top guy, yeah. uh, working directly in bed with Soros. Um, and the idea of Tiananmen Square was gonna be, okay, let's start with a, uh, uh, a grievance because you know Zhao Ziyang had already brought in 
tons of free market privatization policies in a very sloppy way. They were trying to turn China into a, a cheap market exporter for U.S. dollar stores and Walmarts. There was a lot of inflation. P students couldn't pay their tuition. It was workers weren't being paid properly. So there was a, a ferment, you know, for people who wanted to feed themselves. And there were protests that began very peacefully. And then suddenly people started observing that there were just like in Ukraine uh, during the overthrow of uh, both government, both nationalist governments that were pro-Russia in Ukraine in the Orange Revolution and, and part two. Um, all of a sudden there were like these masked anarchists, these people with Molotov cocktails, certain people, there's pictures of some of these like radical, um, like they're like young mobsters or something with guns. And we're yeah. discovering later that these were being facilitated by people like James Lilly, who was the CIA operative who became the U.S. ambassador running and managing a lot of this. So all of a sudden things got violent and more violent to the point that very quickly, and again, Gene Sharp is on the ground everywhere, just managing things. Then he gets out. Um, and the idea was to have Zhao Ziyang, the hero, the great hero against the evil totalitarian communist party in support of the, the young people, which was supposed to be a response to China's uh, cracking down violently on the anarchists who were who were like killing hundreds of of PLA soldiers. And there's pictures of of dozens upon dozens of PLA soldiers who had been stabbed to death, like bodies burnt, hung. It's it's disgusting what was done. And, and the mass media in the West doesn't showcase that. But that didn't happen. There was no crackdown. Nobody actually died in as, as a massacre. That's been a, a there's maybe two to three hundred people max. And a lot of them, again, were PLA soldiers who weren't even really armed. They were just getting, they had like batons getting lit on fire. Um, so, uh, you know, on the one hand, Zhao Ziyang, who was trying to like go out into the people and say like, no, the the, the, the government is wrong. You are right. We will stand together. At the, the Chinese, you know, Communist Party elders are looking at him thinking, what the fuck are you doing? Uh, right. So the Operation the Yellowbird. You know about all Operation Yellowbird. Say, yeah. tell the tell the guests what Operation or the the audience what what this is. Sure, Operation Yellowbird was first beta tested in the first um, um, uh, revolt, the first political revolt that happened in Myanmar, aka Burma, right? And it was tried there, where it was trying to bring down and depose the demo, the uh, elected government over there, and at that time it failed. So uh, then it was exported over mm. to Hong Kong, I believe in the, in, in like the mid eighties and in the mid eighties, NGOs were, were brought in and, and you had all sorts of dissident movements, student movements, cause they love to go after the college students to indoctrinate them, get them into, Hey, it's an us against them. It's this uh, decrepit old system, a bunch of, you know, terrible individuals ruling over you and you need freedom. So they mm. indoctrinated the, 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 the college students. They, and, and then from Hong Kong, it's a short, uh, you know, uh, hop, skip, and a jump away from Hong Kong to Shenzhen and onward into uh, the Tiananmen Square. And that's what you see when uh, all the NGOs, everything they've been working on, everything with the student unions and this, that, and the other came to fruition. And Operation Yellowbird went into full, you know, full operation, they, you know, went fully active. And that's what we witnessed as Tiananmen Square. And then the Western media was there to spin the whole damn thing and frame a narrative, which is what Western media used to be very good at, but not anymore. No, no, they're getting sloppy. They're getting arrogant. Uh, yep. And he, one one additional aspect to this Operation Yellowbird that I think has a lot of value is that it was also part of the escape plan. So after the thing was aborted and they realized they couldn't get their bloodbath and the regime change in China the, the way the way that they wanted to, um, what do you do with all of these um, 
agent provocateurs who have been working for you, um, do you let them get arrested by the CPC and then no. what spill the beans in interrogation of what's been going on? No, you can't do no, that. You, f- you flee them to, to Hong Kong and Taiwan. Yeah, and even on official uh, Wikipedia pages, which usually just whitewash this sort of thing, they you know it even talks about how MI6, the CIA together, ran this thing to get the the talent, <laughs> the violent talent, out of of the zone into Hong Kong using the Chinese triads in Hong yep. Kong, which then got them on boats and then got them infused into mostly the U.S. and Canada. Uh, which were the two zones of of recip- uh, reception where they were given sanctuary. And they even make the point that many of these guys were given immediately Ivy League scholarships. Um, they set up shop. I mean, this is where we had the first major influx into Canada uh, in Vancouver of right. the first wave of Chinese, which, again, there's just like in Australia, there's a lot of uh, racist arrogance and fear and xenophobia in Canada, too. So people in Canada see... You know, the housing market bubble blowing up over years. They see drug problems. Fentanyl is a major issue and killer here. They they see that Asia is playing a role in it. And they just see these yellow faces. And they're like, look, it's all part of the Chinese government's uh, long-term agenda to undermine our Western Christian civilization. Get them. And it's like, no, these, are, these were brought in by the British Canadian uh, elite working with the United States. And they have created the nucleus of a, a pro-democracy, what's that word mean? An anti- <laughs> anti-nation state <A> resistance <laughs> movement. Yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm starting to fall. I'm, <laughs> the language is, is seeping into me too, uh, which I can't even like use pro-democracy. Uh, I, I vomit every time I hear that word. Well, you know, Biden is is just announced, right? The uh, the creation of a new league of, what's called the uh, Summit for League Democracies. of Losers? The League of Losers. The League of Losers. The League of Losers is the yeah the second the subtitle yeah <laughs> the the League of Un- Unarmed Non Neutral Losers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is gonna be like in December or something, twenty twenty one, to unite all of the democratic good good states against the oh. authoritarian regimes oh. of the world. Uh-huh. And it's like, what does that mean? Your definition of democracy, just like these guys around Zhao Ziyang back then when he was expelled, because I didn't say this. What happened to Zhao Ziyang wasn't just that people were like, hmm, what are you doing here? Like, what are you doing working with these these regime change? They immediately shut him down, put him in house arrest where he died 15 years later, never to leave his house. And all of his allies were all, I mean, either arrested or they escaped to the United States again running. And I'm, I haven't done the work on this, but I'm sure if you like dug into this a little bit, anybody out there wanting to dig dig into some of these names like uh, Chen Yitzi. Uh, who ran the the uh, the think tank with Soros? He was his, uh, Zhao Ziyang's assistant. I'm sure you would find all sorts of overlap with the Falun Gong, with Steve Bannon's networks, yep. all of these like anti Miles uh, Guap. I'm sure. I'm sure there's tons of overlap like that. Uh, and I uh, there's tangents, right? But I mean, another point is that I mentioned that that was the first major wave of influx of immigration from China, uh, from Hong Kong, and and the, the the deep state part of China into the West. The second major thing. The second major wave was in 1997, right before the triads and the other corrupt oligarchs in China who had been empowered under the 1980s, especially um, just like, you know, the, the, there were Russian oligarchs created. The problem was a lot worse in Russia where they did not expel Soros early enough and they were raped. And there was a creation of a new oligarchical priesthood class beholden to Wall Street and the city of London. 
China had their own problem. It was smaller, but it was a problem. And they didn't know what China was going to do the mainland when Hong Kong was uh, given back by the British. Were they all going to go to jail? They didn't know. So a lot of them preemptively jumped ship and went to Canada. And that was where you had a second major wave of influx. Um, and the third major wave ha began happening around 2012 when Xi Jinping came in. And there was obviously going to be a major anti-corruption crackdown, which did happen en masse. Um, a lot of people went to jail who had a lot of power in China. And the West spins out as, look, he's consolidating power. He's going to be the supreme yeah. dictator for life. <laughs> yeah, my God. No, I mean, sure. Like, yeah, you could say there's evidence of some of his political opponents who were like jailed. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's true. Did they do what they were accused of doing? Nobody's asking that question. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they actually did. So, I mean, it's not... Eh. You know, yeah, it's all spin. So this whole idea of appreciating the top, and they want to preserve the best traditions of the U.S., but they don't know their history. They don't know what China's actually been doing. They don't know that Soros is running your country. He's 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 a major player uh, in the U.S., Canada, Europe. Um, he's not allowed into China. <laughs> no. China kept control of their private of their of their national banking system, right? Yep. We let that go a long time ago. We lost our economic sovereignty in so many ways when we did that. China actually has it. Russia's trying to rebuild it, and they're doing a pretty good job under Putin, um, despite the fact that Russia still has a lot of their own Malthusian technocrats that had seeped in with the oligarchs during the 1990s. A lot of them are still there, but Putin has done a really fabulous creative job with a coterie of like-minded allies working with the Chinese and overcoming a lot of the, uh, the the rot cutting out and carving out the 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 cysts. Um, so, you know, you you have actual nations acting according to their own national interests on an international level, bringing putting out fires that were created by the Western idiots in the Middle East, offering real reconstruction packages. And what's what what's happening behind the scenes behind you know the the hologram of of Biden, who really is nothing. Uh, or Trudeau, it's it's that there is a push to use false flag type of fear, basically anything that involves fear. So we have the three things that people have to keep watch on right now. Yes, the U.S. is leaving on an official military level in many of the, the regions of Afghanistan, some other parts of the Middle East. Yes. However, at the same time, you have people like, uh, Dil oh, what's her name? Um, Diliana Gitsarjiefa, uh, who's a, um, a Georgian analyst. She's really good. And she's done amazing work documenting the covert uh, arms funding deals that have been negotiated with the U.S. military industrial complex and major arms manufacturers in former Soviet states to flood the Idlib province of Syria, which is the, the ISIS al-Qaeda zone of control right on, the, right on the border of Turkey with all sorts of weaponry that's very difficult to identify because it's made in former Soviet factories that so it's like not obviously when you just see it or capture these weapons, not obviously coming from U.S. Uh, direction or British direction, but they're being flooded into the zone. So you're going to see an increase of chaos operations. And I think one of the the points that that a lot of the, the Western um, game masters are trying to go for right now is pull China in through economic investments, and they hope that they can then initiate using their proxies, terrorists and other chaos operations, while saying, oh, it's not us, we're out of there, you know, 
So that's one thing that they're trying as, as a scenario. I'm not saying that it's going to work. I'm just saying that that's part of the calculus. The other thing is, um, I mean, we, we are, I think everybody watching this knows that a lot of what's being, we're being told about as a pandemic is really another bit of a, it's another false flag. We don't have to go into that right now. The other thing though, that's been coming out over the last few weeks, especially with the, the British creation of sp the UK space command, the UK version of space force is oh, the, God. um, yeah, they actually did it. They, they went and created their own and now it's <laughs> what's it called? Interface. space battalion. <laughs> He's coming. It, it sounds man. Yeah, they're they're all like weird comic booky type of it's cosmic weird. force. <laughs> yeah, they all wear like Fantastic Four uniforms. <laughs> they all the dress like the X Men. <laughs> <laughs> little, little, yeah, they're all dressed like Mas the X Men. The, the universe. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh my uh, god. Well, they, they yeah no, it's totally. Matt, could you yeah, could, really uh, oh, could you do me a favor? Could you delineate? Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people get confused on this, right? They 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 don't know uh, the rudiments, the the real uh, backstory of this, and they rely on stupid internet blogs and this, that, and the other with people who have zero experience in real life in dealing with this kind of stuff. Okay, can you describe the difference between the CCP that came under Mao and the current modern iteration of the CCP, and where the break happened from those two? That's a big, um, that's a big question. And I could do it in a summary condensed way, but, yes. um, if people go to, um, to by tomorrow night, if anybody goes to the rise and tide foundation website, they're going to see a, a lecture that was delivered by my friend, uh, and colleague Quan Le, uh, who's a doctor here in Montreal. And, and he is a geopolitical analyst of a very high order, uh, and a philosopher. And he, he goes through a history. It was called, uh, um, statecraft in modern China from Sun Yat-sen to, uh, the New Silk Road, and he goes through a history of the evolution of the CCP, uh, CPC, as as he prefers that it be called. Um, and people could watch that by tomorrow night on our website. It'll be up on on our YouTube channel on our website. But Excellent. in short, to answer your question, um, there there always was, and and I mean, I'll just cite from Quan here from things that I learned um, after Sun Yat Sen died, who was the first you know president and great revolutionary of China who modeled. Um, China's entire Republican government in 1911, which overthrew the dynastic system. He modeled it on Abraham Lincoln's American system. He cites directly um, America, uh, Lincoln's principle of government for, by, and of the people as the guiding force of how China had to reconstruct itself for the, the new millennium. Um, very forward-thinking guy who understood his, his dynamics of history very well. And he died a little bit early. He had, I mean, there he couldn't consolidate power properly. There were a lot of warlords. A lot of them, keep in mind, came to power under British direction, British help uh, for much of that time. The British, he understood very much to be the Byzantine hand behind the scenes lighting fires. And he warned about that in a lot of his uh, writings. Um, I saw that uh, CJ just pulled up a little video that I just watched this morning, actually. And anybody who wants to understand some of this can go to uh, the LaRouche Organization website. And that documentary is fabulous. It's really well done on uh, the history of U.S.-China relations from yep. the 1860s to the present. Really good documentary. So check that out. Um, all that to say, so the Mao seems to have been a bit of a mixed bag at different times, like many people in, in history. At different times, he did good things. And at different times, he did bad things. The thing that often determined whether it, what he was doing was positive or negative in the context of this you know, international great game 
which we always have to keep in mind uh, the nature of the global game. You can't analyze China from a purely Chinese standpoint because there's always foreign manipulation. Um, had a lot to do with his advisors. And at some points, he, be, he was more into the influence of very great um, advisors like uh, Premier Zhou Enlai, who was, uh, you know, this is the guy who organized the Bandung Conference, the principles of peaceful, um, uh, five principles of peaceful ex coexistence which in 1955 in Indonesia created the foundations of foreign policy based on win-win cooperation, great projects with African, Indian, and other countries. Um, Zhou Enlai was great. Now, Zhou Enlai wasn't always heard. He was very patient. Um, he was even earlier on an ally of Sun Yat-sen um, until it became evident that the Kuomintang was just too infiltrated, too corrupt, too opportunistic, that it couldn't be really worked with. So he moved, just like Sun Yat-sen's own wife, ended up recognizing that same problem, and they both moved into the camp of the communists. Now, again, it's a battle. It's dynamic. It's, 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 a, it's a process that people have to think about that way. So you'll find good things that happened. The, the longevity, the quality of life did increase in various uh, ways in the 1950s um, under uh, the direction of, of Zhou Enlai and when Mao was under that, that direction. Now, at a certain point, um, the Gang of Four became very influential. The Gang of Four were, I think, flatterers. They were adherent to a very feudal way of... I mean, they were of the view that to have freedom, you had to get rid of the thousands of years of Chinese tradition and just reset everything. It was like a great reset agenda, which is why I think they had the, the, the support of a lot of Western deep state uh, operatives back then. And their idea was culture revolution. Just get all of the intellectuals who are the source of corruption because that you know causes people to crit criticize, doubt the way we're doing things when you have too much intellectual activity, uh, too much Western science, Western music and art and all of these literature, it's all corruption. So they just purged schools, governments, everything under the Red Guard uh, who were just young anarchist uh, Jacobins deployed all over China um, to run a campaign to pull people into the purity of nature and farming. And so, you know, people who had, who were PhDs, who were musicians, they were not allowed to play. They were not allowed to practice their, their craft. And they had to just farm or work in a factory um, mindlessly for a decade. And a lot of them died out. A lot of them were crushed. A lot of them committed suicide. And, and there's, there's some horror stories there. Um, but, you know, nothing, nothing lasts forever. And, and fortunately, um, Mao, well, I mean, fortunately, when Mao died in 1976, uh, there was a purge and Zhou Enlai's network under Deng Xiaoping, who was his, his sort of his ally throughout the 1960s, they took control and consolidated power after Mao died. And immediately first action that Deng Xiaoping did was to tell the people that it is okay to criticize the mistakes of Mao. Mao is not a god and you can do that. And the Cultural Revolution was a mistake. The Great Leap Forward was full of mistakes. So he gave people the ability to criticize, which they were not formally allowed to do. And again, uh, I think Mao's ego had a bit of a, a problem driving him a bit, a bit kooky. Um, the Gang of Four, second thing, were all put in prison. So the whole Gang of Four that ran that operation, that mess, were, were imprisoned. Um, Henry Kissinger was a bit frustrated because Kissinger had negotiated in 1970, 1971, Pierre Elliott Trudeau had sort of opened up the door from Canada to start getting uh, Mao to open up. And the idea was, well, the West is going through a transition to become a consumer post-industrial society is what the coup was after Bobby Kennedy was killed was let's take a former industrial 
pro-nation state society with thousands of, or thousands, I mean, a very long heritage. Let's extract that, just like what was happening in China. Let's end that, turn everybody into consumer zombies. Let's create a new system of rules, of technocracy, of, of economic, uh, you know, uh, freedman-like liberalism that will then get rid of all national controls over economic affairs, no more national long-term planning, and we'll call ourselves post-industrial. That'll be it. And, and that was done in 1971 under Nixon when George Schultz played the key role with, with Kissinger in pulling the plug off of the fixed exchange rate system that was tied to a gold reserve that had been the sort of foundation for international development and stability since World War II. That was plugged. Dollar was floated to the, to the markets. And increasingly, that became tied to speculation, speculation on oil, uh, oil commodities, other forms of commodities, and, and the deregulation just went crazy. So Kissinger, the question was, how are you going to um, manage the world system when the West that you want to um, detooth, you know, they're trying to cut the legs off of the Western nation states by outsourcing their industries. Well, if you're going to deindustrialize, who's going to do the production of the of the goods? Well, that would have to be China. It would have to be the poor countries that would produce, but they would never themselves develop. They would just create special economic zones on the coasts that would be cheap labor factories for cheap exports um, where the they would import raw materials and semi-finished goods into China. They would then convert that into something finished and then export that. They would never consume it or increase the, the peasants' standard of living. Right. So that worked really well with the Gang of Four agenda under the, under the Cultural Revolution of just fixed a fixed state. Instead of just having agriculture, they could have a few controlled zones of factories, but really no change, no big projects. And Michael Billington, who uh, is a researcher who I think played a role in uh, the script for that documentary that's being played on the screen right now, he wrote a wonderful um, article that I cite from in my new piece that's going to go up on Zhao Ziyang, where he makes the point that even the Trilateral Commission themselves had a major conference in China and Beijing in 1981 or 82 to stop and prevent those around Deng Xiaoping who wished to... Uh, evoke large scale development projects like three, you know, the, the, the pro nation builders of China who wanted to go with the, the Zhuanlai program for four, what was called the four modernizations, uh, that is modernizations of, of, uh, agriculture technology, industrial technology, space and uh, pure science and defense. Those are going to be the things that drove the economy, just like JFK's space program had a, had a top down effect of transforming every other element within the economy. Um, that was their idea. And the, there was a fight over who would control the definition of what this would be. So this is a very hot period from 1977 to 19, you know, all the way to 89. But this whole period is, is hot. So Kissinger is trying to do everything possible to pull back, to get them back into that gang of four mentality of, of cheap production. You can make money, create a, a rich upper class. Uh, but And so who was brought in? I mentioned earlier you had Milton Friedman. Uh, brought in. You had Alvin Toffler. Um, again, Toffler is a very influential guy. Uh, Newt Gingrich was a disciple of Toffler, but so was a lot of like Klaus Schwab. And in fact, I got to, you know what, I'm just going to read a quote just to get a sense of this. Uh, people think of the um, the fourth industrial revolution as some sort of a new thing. It's not. And the Trilateral Commission, which hosted this Bayesian conference under uh, David Rockefeller in 1982, had said that we have to keep China stuck in um, 
labor intensive modes of production, not capital intensive national planning. And that was very clear. But this is what Zhao Ziyang uh, stated at a Beijing conference on October 9th, 1983. Keep in mind, people think again, fourth industrial revolution is a new thing. No, this term goes back to Toffler and it was tied to the idea of cybernetics, the third wave and, um, and systems analysis that you could control systems um, that human beings had no, nothing sacred. There was nothing inalienable in individual individuals. They were all just little robotic machines to be controlled because they adapt to their controlled environments. Who controls the environment? The master class above above the show. It's like Plato's uh, example of the allegory of the cave, right? Who who controls what the 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 people latched onto the cave wall believe? They is reality. It's who controls the shadows that are being cast and the sounds that are being made from above. Um, that's how these guys think. So Zhao Ziyang stated, whether we call it the fourth industrial revolution, 1983, whether we call it the fourth industrial revolution or we call it the third wave, these Western uh, writers, and he's referring to Toffler and, and Friedman, all believe that Western countries in the 1950s and 60s reached a high degree of industrialization and are now moving to an information society. At the end of this century and the beginning of the next century, or within a few decades, there will be a new kind of situation in which breakthroughs and new technology that are happening now, or will happen soon, will be used for production and for society. This will bring a new leap in social productivity and thus a corresponding set of new changes in social life. This trend is worthy of our attention and must be carefully studied based on our actual situation. Um, and he goes on to describe how um, his view is that science should be, in Zhao Jiang's mind, there's a fight over what will science be? How do you define science? What do you define the purpose of science? In people like Toffler, uh, Zhao Jiang, and, and Kissinger, it's, and, and Zhao Jiang is very clear, the science policy for China must be artificial intelligence, uh, uh, bioengineering, and um, computer tech, those three things. That And, and in his view, the, the idea was China and other third world countries could achieve the information, what's called the third wave, the fourth industrial revolution, which is, um, okay, I should say something first. Okay, so Toffler's view of the third wave is that there were three waves. All of human civilization can be categorized into three thoughtless waves that just have a force of evolution unto themselves. There's nothing to do with human planning. No human thought or intention is a guiding force. It's just a force of evolution in his theory system. Does he believe it? I don't think he does because I know who he works for. But in the theory, it's that the first wave was the agricultural feudal age where we had feudal political systems and culture associated with just simply being an agricultural civilization. The second wave happened more recently, about 400 years ago or 300 years ago with the industrial revolution where we began using steam power and machines. And in... Sorry, that's my... Oui, monsieur, French, oui. French, oui, uh, oui, oui. Uh, that is the latte alarm. It's time for the latte. I like it a little loud. <laughs> right, let me take a sip of my... Oh, I have a latte right here. I have a latte right here. <laughs> you jest, you jest, but it hit home. <laughs> it hit home. Uh, <laughs> so the second wave, so it is, yeah, you start using now industrial activity to produce for people and the associated political structure that Toffler says goes with is representative democracy in nation states. But that's limited for the second wave. The third wave, which is the superior wave that everything leads into, is the information post-industrial society where we just start interfacing human beings directly with machines. Um, sound familiar, right? 
um, artificial intelligence machines start replacing the acts uh, that human beings used to do. Um, there's a, and he talks about the, uh, the useless class. So there's increasingly amount of useless people who used to do things that were productive. And now we have to figure out ways of dealing with them. Uh, don't, you know, don't go into details. Maybe that's for the upper level, uh, free bases to, to know, but the point is you got this whole idea of now an associated form of horizontal, not top down democratic association with that. So the idea is, uh, governance is from the bottom. You have local, local democracies where that's all people can interface with. And that's all they're allowed to think about is what's immediately in their sensory domain. So everybody thinks very myopically and selfishly about their own local mini little worlds. So that's the, the idea of democracy and voting is shaped on like, what's your school board going to be? Or like, who's your local puppet going to be? Uh, but the idea of who controls the levers of the society that is reserved for the technocrats above the show who know, who have hard stomachs and know how to make tough decisions for the scientific management of society. Zbigniew big new Brzezinski, who was also a member of the Trilateral Commission, called this the techn technotronic era. Um, so it had a few different names, but it's the same thing. Um, this is what Klaus Schwab is a devote devotee with, with the World Economic Forum. And um, one of the key guys who worked with Zhao Ziyang during this period and Kissinger was Song Jian, who was a, a Chinese rocket scientist, um, brainwashed in cybernetics and systems analysis in, in the Soviet system after Stalin died. And he brought a, brought in these things, and we've talked about this in previous shows, but he brought this um, into, he was invited to a conference and hosted by the Club of Rome, which uh, was an organization that funded the a new type of um, social management system called the Limits to Growth in 1972. And um, the Club of Rome, which was founded by, you know, a couple of guys named Alexander King and um, uh, Aurelio Pache. They were both very high-level intelligence assets um, who basically were used to pour money into a new type of approach to planning nation-states premised around the idea that we, we cannot develop science, technology, or we cannot develop big infrastructure projects the way we did under Kennedy or Roosevelt or anything like that. We have to now just use ecosystems management. So development became ecosystems management, and you define ecosystems as these pristine mathematical equilibrium zones, which are natural when they're not changing. And when human beings try to do something like build a dam, that changes the equilibrium and thus it is not natural and thus destructive and thus bad. So the I, the, the way that they were able to get this across was through um, this study called Limits to Growth. And Limits to Growth basically used computer modeling, you input data like pollution increases, population increases, uh, re resource deplenishment, and you chart out in a linear extrapolations into the future without any regard for human creative mentation or technological progress. That doesn't even right. exist. Because it's all about balancing them? the load. It's all about balancing the load. The technocratic yeah, dream, and, dream. Yeah, exactly. It's all material. It's all things you can you can weigh, touch, sense, feel, uh, as forces, but the mind is not material. It's, 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 it's metaphysical. The mind, it right. doesn't exist in space or time, but it is the cause of change. So that is al also right. right there, a major important scientific concept that these guys, these technocrats are afraid of because you can't put something immaterial or universal like mind into a computer. It's nonlinear that way because it can make creative leaps that are non, that are things computers cannot do. Computers can beat us when we play by the rules of a fixed game like chess. Yes, computers can do computer learning and get better at a fixed set of rules, but it's not going to break the rules of the game. It could just get better at us and compute faster than us. And so 
as, but human beings can break the rules. That's why the oligarchy doesn't like China or Russia because the Belt and Road, the new Silk Road, is all about breaking the rules by introducing new discoveries, whether it's in military systems with hypersonic jets or space tech or um, massive development projects all over the earth that awaken new technologies, new engineering feats, um, and new sets of potentials where you can move, what you can do. All of these things um, are, are things that break the rules of the game. And, and they're just having temper tantrums. The Kissinger, Soros, Toffler-like people are having temper tantrums. And, oh, I didn't finish my point. So Sung Jian, uh, the, this, this rocket scientist, goes to a, a Finland-based uh, conference in 1979. He learns about the Club of Rome models, and he brings it back to China, and he translates the limits to growth without attribution to the original authors into Chinese. Um, Senjian Press is the uh, is the is the press agency which which circulates this in the millions of copies around the Chinese elite. Um, and he makes he starts giving presentations to the Chinese Politburo to the circles around Deng Xiaoping to say, well, this is where the population crisis is going to be because you know it's the neo it's Malthusianism it's the neo Malthusian revival. And he, and he makes the point: look at these linear trends. Within fifty years, we're going to have way more people than we could support. The resources are going to deplenish too much, so we need to act now. And this is the origin of the one child policy. So he was able to persuade a bunch of these forces to go along with this plan, which resulted in a mass. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Babyside, uh, uh, killing of young baby girls. Infanticide. That's the word. Uh, mass infanticide. You know, and, and China's population, though they got rid of, I mean, they got rid of the one-child policy in twenty seven sixteen, which only affected the native Han Chinese. By the way, folks. Yeah, if you're a Muslim in China, Uyghur, you never had. Yeah. To, you could have. Yeah, yeah, the Uyghurs could have five, six kids if they wanted to. Um, it's just that the, yeah, the Han Chinese, unfortunately had this thing, but it came in from the club of Rome. It's not, uh, this is my point. It's, it's not a, a, a Chinese evil population control policy. The Chinese have been trying to overcome and heal themselves from that for a long time. It came from ideologues from the club of Rome and the cybernetics groups of the West who brought this in brainwashed and, and confused a lot of people who didn't know how to think about this properly. And that's what made this thing, uh, such an atrocity. And to this very day, like, you know, now you can have three children in China. They, they've increased it again. And, and so they're trying to overcome it, but there's still a crisis. They're still like, they're way under uh, social replenishment levels. Um, and in this guy's computer modeling, he had said, oh, look, we have to get rid of two, 250 to 300 million people. We have to get China low, down to like 650 million people. At the time that he was saying this, it was almost a billion. So that was already like back in 1979. That's a mass kill. So... They're they're trying to overcome these things, and they're doing it by doing the very thing that Kissinger and others banned from the West and China: big projects tied to overcoming the limits to growth. And one point, I think this is a good place for me to wrap up slowly here. But um, at the end of my paper, I cite a um, a speech from Xi Jinping because uh, Xi Jinping people are confused about him. And there's two quotes that are very valuable. One was to the uh, the CPC. Um, there was like a party conference, and he gave the speech in 2016, uh, describing the role of computer modeling in a certain way. But what is the conception of development we need to have? Now, keep in mind that in the limits to growth, it acknowledges that there's both change and non-change in human and economic systems. The thing is, which is primary, which one leads and which one follows? Because if you believe that no change, stability, mathematical equilibrium is primary and ch then change, the things that change, 
become subservient to the fundamentally fixed rule of no change. Nature is no change. Unnature, non-natural things are changing. That leads you down the path of mental fascism. You have to start concluding in limiting population because populations, when we're creative and we make new discoveries, we change. We there's more of us. You know, there's 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 almost nine billion of us on the earth. Other species can't even get close to that. I, I encourage anybody who wants to understand this better, read that or watch that LaRouche uh, organization video uh, on China and the United States, and and look at Lyndon LaRouche's discoveries because I've been reading the I've been studying that, and that's 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 powerful. Now, in Xi Jinping, in, in his speech, he, and I'm going to just cite it because it's so important. He puts no change, but in a specific type of qualitative non-change in uh, the primary position. Um, so he says here, coordinated development this is 2016. How is the Belt and Road philosophy going to organize itself? Coordinated development is the unity of balanced development and imbalanced development. The process from balance to imbalance, and then to rebalance is the basis of development. Balance is relative, while imbalance is absolute. That's important. Balance is relative, while imbalance is absolute. Emphasizing coordinated development is not pursuing equalitarianism, but giving, giving more importance to equal opportunities and balanced resource allocation. Every time a new discovery comes online, it will transform everything if it's a real discovery. Um, that will create a certain amount of imbalance, but afterwards, things, things set into a new equilibrium, a new set of standards of production that were not available, non-existent in, let's say, the pre-electricity-based society. Before electricity was applied to the production system, we had a different set of norms of production, consumption, transformation of raw materials, all of these things, right? All of these things had to always happen going back thousands of years, but the pre-electricity society had a different set of standards of, of, of cycling of these different processes from nature, from mines, from, from forests, through factories of some form into usable goods that would then sustain lives that would be consumed, that would then, you know. So there was a stability there. The new discovery caused an instability, but a new set of st uh, relationships began to uh, emerge right? Uh, different types of alloys, uh, relationships to the periodic table of elements began to occur as you began using circuits to transmit electricity. Um, that all of a sudden was associated with increased rates of production. The flow of goods were being transformed from nature into factories, back out into finished goods to be consumed at a higher rate. So there's a new stability. Now you're going to, the Malthusian who's running a computer model always looks only at how fast is that deplenishing diminishing, how much are the diminishing rates of return uh, occurring such that we can then start uh, limiting population growth, which is what Malthus, Thomas Malthus, working for the British East India Company said had to be done, was how do we, you know, use, how does the British Empire or any responsible government scientifically manage uh, their wars, the, the natural uh, checks and balances to uh, population like famine, disease, how do we encourage disease? How do we encourage famine to naturally check the limits of population to accommodate the diminishing returns of nature? Now, the American system, the, anybody who actually follows the thought and philosophy of Benjamin Franklin, of Plato, um, of Alexander Hamilton, um, of Lincoln and his advisors, looks at it in a totally different way. The way they look at, at it the way Xi Jinping does. And they see no, the resource that creates all of the resources 
is the mind. It is the only unlimited resource because it can always make new discoveries and discover new resources and new ways of doing things that allow us to, if we're moral, if we're morally fit to survive, transform willfully through the freedom of our will, right? Our behavior in relationship to the universe such that when we do so in the correct natural way, the universe uh, responds by allowing us to sustain more people at a higher quality of life and more potentials to live according to their their minds instead of the brute force of their physical labor the way other animals or cows have to live, right? Cows and other things are fine, but they're not going to come up with a new discovery of like planting your grass more, uh, you know, vitamin rich or something like that. It's just that they're they're down to the limits of nature and their populations will be regulated according to their genetics and whatever nature gives them. If there's a drought, they will die. Um, we can put food aside in a grain reserve. We can make a dam. We can desalinate water. We can do all sorts of things uh, to stop uh, a kill off. We can build a missile defense system against asteroids. We don't have to build it against humans. We can do those things. So it's like we can, through the power of this immaterial force that we all have access to willfully develop if we so choose, we can overcome the limits to growth. And that is what technocrats, feudalists, Malthusians refuse to admit because they're projecting their own absence of creativity and absence of love and their own computer-like neurotic disorders onto the rest of the system that they want to control. And to the degree that we act like they want us to act, we act like them, we cannot refute them. We, we cannot refute artificial intelligence or anything else because we're being trained by our schools, by our everything to just act like hedonistic little calculating machine beasts. You know, so yeah. that, that's where I would sort of wrap it. I think wrap it up. Matthew, very well said. There's a lot to unpack. Folks, I encourage you to go back and listen to this program again with Matthew speaking. Uh, make sure you have your notebook out and take some notes. And also for a real dive, a real deep dive into all of this that are very key, vital points of information for you to get the height, the breadth, and the width of this entire thing that we're talking about here day after day, week after week on Rogue News, especially when Matthew's coming on. You need to go to the risingfoundation.net, risingfoundation.net. The link is in the description box. I call it the modern day geopolitical, geostrategic, geohistoric library of Alexandria. It's virtual, it's online. You can go there, read the articles, download the articles, copy and paste the articles, share the articles, get yourself a first class education in the realm of geopolitics. Don't waste your time. Re, you know, repeating and rehashing and retweeting axioms and tropes put together by guys who are just internet scholars and keyboard jockeys who really have no real work experience. They don't. They don't know the subject matter. They haven't toiled in the books. I mean, there's a reason why Matt's sitting in front of a library. All those books behind him. That's uh, he read all that. <laughs> Okay. Mm. <laughs> he, he read all that. <laughs> He's being it, it, the hope but, is uh, to honestly do it. It's not a green screen. It's not a green screen. It's not a green screen. Okay, folks, that's the real deal. So get a good grasp and understanding, and also check out uh, the video that we put that we're playing. I want you guys to check it out in your free times. Listen to it. Go to sleep listening to it. whatever you got to do. Digest it. Uh, it is there. You need to understand what the framers of this Constitution, what they fought for in 1776, the American system. What is that? What is that? And once you grasp what that is, then you, too, will fight for it. Then you, too, will want that, not just for this country, but for the entire world. Matthews, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you for sharing this with us. And once again, folks, follow him. The links are in the description box, CanadianPatriot.com. 
risingtidefoundation.net, as well as Matthew Eretz Substack. It's all there. Subscribe to all three of, of, of his sites. Amazing work. Amazing, amazing, amazing. He's a real brain trust, so we, we're very privileged to have him here. And with that being said, folks, hit, hit the thumbs up button. It helps with the algos. Uh, YouTube is doing their best to suppress us. We're, CJ, they've consistently blocked us at 3,400 views, even though we're getting 10, 12, 15,000 views. We have, we're capped at 100,000 subscribers, even though we were north of 100,000 for quite a while. So do your best. Help us with the thumbs up and, and really does help, help us fight the algos. So thank you so much for listening in. CJ, take it away.